Luke chapter 6 is where we are. We got to get rolling. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, we'll get one to you. But we are in Luke's gospel. We're coming to the end of what's been known, at least traditionally, as the Sermon on the Plain. It's Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 49. I'll give you a chance to turn there, read it, pray, and we'll dive in. All right, this is God's word. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, Jesus says, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray, guys. Oh God, as we do every Sunday, as hopefully we do every day, moment by moment, uh, we put ourselves under your word. We put ourselves under the word of the God who made us and redeemed us. And Lord, today you come with a sobering word. I'm praying for us, even when I was just praying back in the room before we began here. I'm praying that you would awaken us, Jesus, to ultimate reality. I know that a lot of us live in these little sub-narratives, these little mini-stories where we have our own little set of worries and concerns. And we rejoice at our little victories and all this. But God, I'm, I'm praying that today you would open our eyes to the ultimate story. And the end of all things that is coming, namely the day of judgment. I'm praying that if our hearts get 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 twisted and turned, if we get anxious for anything or concerned about anything, let it be for ultimate reality. Not the. The little things we so often get worked up with. Ultimate reality, like how will I get through the judgment day into glory? 
how will I stand before a holy God? But I'm praying that you would use this sermon and your words to us here this morning to awaken us to that question, but also to the great and glorious answer you've provided in the gospel of your son. Do that and more than I can imagine in these moments of prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, see, sometimes I, 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 I end up messing myself up. I actually pray what I'm going to preach. <laughs> so that was pretty much the sermon in miniature right there. So you're welcome. You can go home if you want. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. You may know that uh, about a week or so, a little over a week ago, um, me and a, a group of guys, uh, courtesy of Steve Marsh, uh, we we got to go up to kind of high half dome there in Yosemite National Park. It was awesome. It was amazing. Uh, I've done it once before. This was a joy. A little bit more painful now that I'm 34 and 10 years later. I, I didn't. <laughs> I should have videoed Paul on the way up. He brought out his cane and everything. I was kidding. <laughs> but it was it was incredible. And while every aspect of the 18 mile or so hike is um, is phenomenal in and of itself, really the whole point of the journey, the goal, the whole the whole reason you're there is to try to get to the top of the dome, right? Not just so you can say you got there, but so that when you get up there, you get the views that you do. I mean, you see the the Merced River in the valley uh, down below. You see like the snow-covered uh, peaks of the Sierras. You didn't even know were there when you were down at first. All across the horizon. I mean, it's about you know over eight thousand feet up and. 360 degrees of just pure glory up there. So you don't train for weeks before, get all your gear in place, wake up at four in the morning, which we did, I was very unhappy about. (laughs) Climb thousands of feet in elevation. Go up, grueling switchbacks back and forth to get to the base of that dome where they have the cables for you to climb up the last kind of part of the journey. You don't do all that. Get up to the base of the dome and stop. Now, we did have a few that had to do that. (laughs) But to do that is to miss the point of the journey. You want to get up there and see what can be seen from up there, the glory in every direction. That's the point of the journey. To stop without climbing those cables up to the top of the dome misses the point. In Jesus' sermon now here back in, uh, well, really, what began in verse 20, the sermon of Jesus is we could say that essentially we've been climbing with him to this point. Now at the base of the dome. (laughs) We're here at the base, if you will, in this sermon. And we've reached kind of, we're approaching the, the point of it all. Where the journey either now will make sense or not. 
Because we've seen a lot these past weeks, and we have spent quite a bit of time on these few verses. But now we're approaching the point of it all, namely, that we actually do all that we've heard him teach. To follow Jesus, listen to every, every you know, uh, turn of phrase, every blessing and woe that we've seen, every promise and warning. To hear every command and illustration and then kind of go on our way and not be moved, not be changed, not start to do what he's teaching us here is to miss the point entirely. Like, Jesus, thanks for that Bible study. That was very inspirational. Now I'll go home and be the same person I was before it began. No heart change, no life change misses the point of everything that Jesus is laboring for here. It's to get up to the base of the dome and not climb the cables. And so Jesus is kind of turning up the heat a little bit to make sure we don't miss the point of everything that he's been after here. Namely, that we do it. That we start to apply it that we start to follow him in the details of our lives not judging loving our enemies letting people strike us on the cheek giving our stuff away and counting it a blessing even to be poor or whatever it might be start wrestling with the realities he's pointing at actually starting to ask god we want to see that in our lives we want to do this that's the point and he's laboring to help us get there there are three things i'm going to do uh this morning i want to bring out of our text um regarding this namely first the lord warns second the lord questions and third the lord saves the lord warns us the lord questions us the lord saves us in this text that's where we're headed so first the lord warns um if you read these verses carefully uh set in the background of his whole exhortation here is essentially a warning in particular i think a warning concerning the coming judgment now we should say i think that um while it seems today if you look around no one's really worried about the coming day of judgment. They just think we're just kind of silly Christians doing our thing. Maybe back, you know, a few hundred years, more culturally speaking, there was a there was a fear of God. Now it's like, God, who? What are you talking about? We're just evolving creatures, and when we die, we die. There's no reckoning with my Maker. We've evolved past those archaic ideas. While most of the culture, at least around us, is not concerned about the judgment day, what we need to understand is that Jesus, Paul, the apostles, I mean, they are essentially orienting their whole lives around that day. Their whole lives and ministries make no sense if that day is not coming. I'll show you an example from Paul's Life, 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. It says this, Whether we are at home with the Lord or away, we make it our aim to please him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And that just sums up Paul's entire life. Everything he's doing, keying off of that one dominating reality. Namely, I'm going to stand before him. You're going to stand before him. Therefore, make it my aim to please him. Therefore, in the fear of the Lord, I warn you. Come to him. Get right with him. Seek to persuade others. And Jesus wants us to live in light of this day as well. And that's why he gives us the words he does here. The, the image that he uses to convey this to us is that of a, a river swelling and flooding and breaking out against the houses around. That's verses 48 and 49. This river just swelling and then the flood coming and breaking out. Some houses standing, some houses falling, but a day of judgment coming now. It's interesting how God does this. I'm not trying to line these things up, but I feel again, the trip in Yosemite was incredible for this. Anybody that was there got a perfect image of, of what Jesus is talking about here in the Merced River. It was off the charts. In fact, even the rangers said, we've never seen water flow like this ever. Because about a few weeks before we came, it was so cold they got snow. And then a few days before we came, it was so hot, all the snow melted. And so the Merced River, the waterfalls, they were at unprecedented levels. Just absolutely insane. You couldn't even hold a conversation next to the river because it was roaring that loudly. It was amazing. There were no boundaries. The trail had to be redirected at numerous places because it was just overflowing. And we even heard one tragic story where a guy got bumped accidentally in. And the moment he was in, he was gone. Never found him. At least a day later, they hadn't found him. He was gone. And Jesus is saying that's the sort of thing that's coming for the world upon his return. That because of our sin, I mean, we trifle with sin. We think it's no big deal. We kind of think God's overreacting. He is holy and he cannot look upon it with favor, right? And that day is coming where he is going to right every wrong. And it's going to look something like this river overflowing, except in cosmic proportions. So later in Luke's gospel, when he's talking with his disciples about this coming day, He says this, Luke 21, verses 25 and 28 through 28. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. If you listened carefully, and I know sometimes it's harder to listen to um, the scriptures than it is to read it. If you listen carefully, what you notice is there's kind of this divide going on here. 
There are some people for whom the coming of Jesus is going to be terrifying. Filling them with dread and fear and fainting from the side of it. But then there are others who he says, listen, talking to his disciples. On that day, don't you be scared. Lift up your head. Your redemption is drawing near. Destruction for some, redemption and joy for others. And the question that emerges then from this warning essentially for us is, well, what accounts for the difference between that kind of person for whom the day is destruction and that kind of person for whom the day is redemption? What accounts for the difference in experience of the coming of Christ? And that gets us now into the second heading I mentioned, the Lord questions. Because Jesus is going to try to lead us to the answer of this question, actually by asking yet another one. He's going to try to point us in the direction of how the coming judgment will go well for us by asking a question of us here at the beginning in verse 46. It's this question that drives at his main point, I think. And this is it. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? The illustration he he goes on to give with the building of the houses and things clarifies this even further. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, verse 47, will be like the guy who's building his house on the rock and he will stand and judgment will go go well. There'll be a day of redemption. But then verse 49, the one who hears and does not do them, does them, does not do them. He's the guy. The ruin of his house is going to be great. It's going to be immediate. It's going to be horrible. And he doesn't want us to be that guy. (laughs) But the conclusion is this. If you want judgment day to go well for you, don't just hear the words of Christ. Do them. Do them. Now, clearly the uh, emphasis in Jesus's uh, exhortation and illustrations here has to do with us doing his word. But I wanted to just step back for a moment and recognize that there is a first and necessary component to that. And that is namely coming to him and hearing. Um, uh, This makes logical sense to us, but we cannot even begin to do what he's told us if we have not first been hearing what he's told us. Right. And so what we should draw from this is that if we want the coming day of judgment to go well for us, well, then his words really ought to matter. And we ought to be making sure we are hearing his words. Yes, we'll get to the doing, and that is essential, and that's the emphasis. But we do need to step back and ask, are we even hearing? Are we even putting ourselves, like I suppose I prayed at the beginning, under God's word and saying, gosh, speak to me. I want to hear from you. I need to hear from you. I need to know what to do with my life. I'm ready to do it. Speak to me, because here's... What can be the unfortunate reality, especially here in Silicon Valley? 
is busy. Life is busy. It's hard. Jobs are hard. Work is hard. Traffic's congested. It's tough, right, to get time. To hear God's word, so to speak. And so we might touch and go with our devotions when we get a chance. We might touch and go with the Sunday service and, and, and sitting under his word as a community. You know, when it fits into our schedule or whatever it is. But Jesus is saying, man, we need to beware. The floodwaters are coming. Ultimate reality is coming. More important than your tests or than what your boss needs or than, you know, whatever is this. That we are hearing his words and preparing our hearts for the end. Right? This readiness requires not just doing his word, but first hearing it. First hearing it. But now I want to return to his original question. This is perhaps where you and I might have... Uh, the greater amount of difficulty. Uh, I want to spend time thinking about uh, and letting this question search us for a little while. Verse 46 again. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I say that this is probably where a lot of us you know, struggle because I imagine most of us have heard many Bible studies, many sermons. You know, we know the gospel. We know his commands. We've heard love your enemies. You can hear that in a second. One second to hear those three words and it will take you a lifetime to actually start to do it. Love your enemies. Anybody struggle with that? I do. So Jesus, with this question, is identifying the disconnect that often exists between our lips and then our lives. What we say, Lord, Lord, and how we live, sometimes in denial of what he's teaching us and calling us to do. And Jesus wants to know, I want to know why. Why does this dynamic break? Down the hearing and the doing. Why do we, brothers and sisters, even us, even me, I just tried to let it search me that what I'm about to give you here is just what I could think of for myself. Why do we hear and then call him Lord, Lord, and then not do what he says? What's going on with that? I'll give you four reasons and we'll kind of meditate a little bit on each one. First, we call him Lord, Lord, and we don't do what he tells us because what he tells us to do is not easy. It's not easy. And I think this is, I bring this one up first because I think it's the one that fits, aligns most uh, tightly with the image, the illustration he gives us. Namely, this idea of building a house and everything else. Because the fact of the matter is, is why? Why would you be the guy who wants to build your life just kind of on the ground without a foundation? Why do that? What's the draw? What's the allure in, 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 in building your house without digging deep to the, found, to the rock and putting your foundation there and building up from that point? Why? Why speed it along? I mean, is it not because it's easier? Because it seems like you get the more immediate results Right? Like I want four walls and a roof so I can get in my sofa, kick up my feet, and relax. I don't want to spend weeks 
weeks digging down to the rock, laying a foundation. We're not even up above the ground yet. I'm wanting something I can see now. Let's put those walls up. Let me sit down and enjoy my life. Let's go easy with this. I love that. I love how Jesus says, man, the guy who's smart, he's the one who digs down deep. He's got this image of this guy just digging and he's sweating and it's hard, but it's worth it. But we have to know this is the, uh, this is the current of our culture. It is the current of our flesh. I mean, if you want a silly example, I mean, have you seen those late night infomercials? Have you seen, let me, let me show you one of these. This is, this is a good one. Uh, you seen that little vibrating belt? You seen that thing? Where, you know, you might have a beer belly. The guy in the, in the infomercial has the beer belly. But he's promised six-pack abs. How? For doing nothing. You put this little belt on your, your belly. You sit on the couch. You might even still be drinking a beer. But it will do the work for you. You'll get the results quickly, easily, without much labor. That's the sort of thing. I mean, you wonder, every one of us sitting there, at least, forgive me if one of you has one. But most of us go, I didn't even consider that a possibility. I guess I should have. But most of us look and go, that does not work. You don't get six-pack abs that way. You get it by sweating and working or whatever, putting in some hard time. But there's something in that that draws our flesh. Oh, wow, quick, easy, immediate result. This sounds great. i got to do nothing for it. I'll buy in. Where do I sign up for that? It's the same sort of thing that Satan is selling us on this side of the day of judgment, on this side of eternity. Namely, come on, fill your barns. And when you fill those, get bigger ones. Just live it up now. Jesus is saying, man, to that guy, I come to him and say, fool, you're dying tonight. Where's all your stuff going to go? There's no sofa for you in eternity. You weren't ready. You didn't care. So we love calling Jesus Lord, Lord, when he's healing us and blessing us and making things easy for us. But what happens when it gets hard? What happens when following him is hard and it will get hard. Paul himself says it. We're going to taste a little bit of this through many tribulations. We must enter the kingdom of God. To get to the kingdom, we're going to do some digging down deep. We're going to sweat. It's going to get rough at times. What happens then? It's not easy to stay faithful to your spouse through the valleys in your relationship. I mean, if you see a couple who's been together for for two, three, four decades, any couple in this room been together for five decades? No? Okay. I I thought maybe this year. I wasn't sure. (laughs) If you see a couple like that, there's only one way you get there, you guys. Fighting to obey Jesus in the valleys that will come. And the testings of your covenantal commitment. That sort of thing is an endangered species in this no-strings-attached, easy relationship sort of culture. So just ask them, how'd you get there? They'll tell you, we fought. 
Against one another? Sure. But more than anything, to obey Jesus. And what he calls us to do. It's not easy to say no to cheating on that test. When it would get you the grade that you need to get the GPA that you need to get into the college that you so desperately want to attend. All your friends are doing it. They don't understand why you don't do it. She's not going to do it. Because we're digging down deep and we're preparing for something bigger than just a college. We're preparing for the day of judgment, for ultimate reality. That's where we're keying our whole lives. It's not always going to be easy to live your whole life under the lordship of Jesus Christ, but it is always wise. (laughs) Because the house built in obedience to God will stand unshaken in the coming judgment. Therefore, church, if we call him Lord, Lord, let's do what he tells us, even if it's hard. Even if it's hard. Second reason. Why do we call him Lord, Lord, and not do what he tells us? Why the breakdown in this dynamic of hearing and doing? Well, I think, uh, secondly, what he tells us to do is not popular. Related to the first, but just kind of building off of it. What he tells us to do is not popular. I think in particular for me with this one of uh, evangelism. I have a Facebook feed. I see what my non-believing friends say about crazy Christians who hold to certain convictions or talk about, you know, things that aren't popular politically or whatever it is. I see this. I don't want to be a crazy Christian. I don't want people to think I'm weird or strange or whatever it is. If I start talking about hell and judgment and the wrath of God against sin and floodwaters threatening the world, who's going to want to be my friend? And I want friends. What Jesus is saying, and I don't mean this in any cheesy sort of way, this is, This is an intense battle. He's saying, I'll be your friend. I'll be your friend. The friendship we get in this world, a lot of times, especially when we sell out on our values, man, they're here, then they're gone. When they get something from us, great. When we're aligned, great. When we don't, when they want something else, they're gone. Jesus' friendship starts now, spreads into eternity. This is ultimate reality. And we love verses like John 15, 15, right? No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. But, but, and I struggle with verses like the one that just comes prior, but it's there. We have to wrestle with this. Verse 14 of that very same flow of thought says this. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I'm ready to be your friend. I want to be your friend, but there is a choice that has to be made. As James would say, listen, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And therefore also (laughs) friendship with God will make us enemies of the world. They will not like us. Though we are working for their salvation, though we are giving our lives for the sake of the world, they will count us as enemies because our values clash. And we're talking about things they don't want to think about. And calling them out for things that they hold dear. 
And so there's a choice that we have to make. Do I want popularity now? And to have the accolades and the friendship of those in the world? Or do I want to hear from my Savior and my Father on that day? Well done. Good and faithful servant, enter into my joy. Is that what drives us? Even when all around people are against us. Sometimes I think that's the breakdown. It's hard to call him Lord and do what he tells us because it's not always popular. But church, if we call him Lord, Lord, let's do what he tells us no matter what people think, right? Third reason I would give us, we call him Lord, Lord, and we don't sometimes do what he tells us because we don't trust him. Because we don't trust him. I think um, if we're honest, we can often be a bit scared of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I hope you know what I mean by calling him Lord. It means you have all of me. You can have my health, you can have my job, you can have my relationships, you can have my money, you can have all of me. Not just my Sundays, but all of me. That's what it means to make Jesus Lord. And that sort of exchange can be scary. Like handing over your life to him. We can often kind of wonder, geez, I... I, I, I don't know what he's going to do with it. When I give him this, what's he going to do with it? And we kind of get scared. Okay, yeah, you know, on Sundays I feel motivated to give him my whatever it is, my finances or this or that. But man, when I start to see things going down, I I want to take it into my own hands again. I want to take it back because I don't trust what he will do with these things as Lord of my life. So I call him Lord, but then I break down somewhere in there because I don't trust him. He might not lead my life to the place I envisioned it would go. I'll take the wheel and get things back on track, Jesus. Thank you. Maybe you're going through one of those seasons of suffering now where, I mean, we all go through this, where you're wondering, I thought God was supposed to be good. Like that's what we sing about. That's what we talk about. He's love. He's good. He's great. I feel like he's abandoned me. I camp out in some of those Psalms where, you know, they're just crying out going, how long? Where are you? The dogs are surrounding me. This is good. This is what a Lord, a good Lord does. And we're tempted. Take care of myself if God won't take care of me. Like Abraham shacking up with Hagar, right? To get the son he always wanted. I got this. Thank you. I'll take the wheel. Like Peter pulling up the sword in the Gethsemane dilemma. I have no category for a crucified Messiah. You're not going to take my my Messiah, my king. All my stakes are put on him. I'm pulling out the sword. I'm going to direct this thing where I think it needs to go. 
We're like the Christian single who decides, listen, I've had enough. There's an unbeliever. He seems nice. I'm lonely and I'm sick of this. I prayed. I gave it to Jesus and he's done nothing with it. I'm still alone. 20 years, 40 years, whatever years later, I'm taking it into my own hands. Thank you. Or the Christian businessman who starts cutting corners to save his business. Yeah, at first I prayed and I I, I said, man, your treasures in heaven seek first the kingdom and everything that you need will be added. Well, I sought the kingdom and it wasn't added. So I'm going to add it myself. Make sure we can keep this thing afloat. We don't trust him to use his authority as Lord for good in our lives. And so we call him Lord, Lord, but there's a breakdown. We don't often, we sometimes don't do what he tells us to do. If we really want a picture, though, of what kind of Lord he is, it's awesome because Luke is going to take us there next. We'll see this next week. As we continue on into chapter 7, we're going to be introduced to the centurion, this soldier guy who gets it. He gets what Jesus' lordship is all about. So here's how it works. He's got a servant, the centurion does, has a servant who's sick on his deathbed. And he sends for help to Jesus. Because he knows, man, Jesus is the kind of Lord who can help with this. But as Jesus is coming close to his house and approaching, you know, the door or whatever, he, 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 he sends out a, a, another friend, the centurion does, with, with a message for Jesus. And this is what he wants this friend to say to Jesus. Verse 6 and 7 of Luke 7. Lord, Lord. Do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but say the word and let my servant be healed. We're ready to roll. That's good. In other words, I know. Where are we going, by the way? (laughs) Somebody's ready for Fourth of July weekend. In other words, the centurion is saying, I know what kind of Lord you are, all powerful and all good. And I trust you. Therefore, you just say the word from a mile away and he will be healed. And Jesus does it and he's healed. You see, that's the kind of Lord that we have. That's where this thing is going to go when we give him all of us. Now, to be sure, immediately it might get rough. We've already kind of talked about that. But the end of the story will be amazing beyond what you can imagine. That's according to Jesus' words. That's according to God's word. It's going to exceed your expectation. Though it's rough right now, though it is hard right now, we have a Lord who will ultimately heal us, bless us, provide for us, save us, redeem us, and bring us to glory. That's what it means to give him everything. 
It's worthy of all of our trust. Lord, and all sovereign and he's all good. We don't need to take this back. We can trust him to guide it. What if Peter's sword had fallen on that soldier or whatever and stopped the cross? You and I wouldn't be here. And eternity would go horribly for us. Let God direct your life where he thinks it should go. If we call him Lord, Lord, let's do what he tells us. Trusting him with everything. Fourth, and don't worry, we'll be drawing this to a close soon. Why do we call him Lord, Lord, and not do what he tells us? Well, I think this is probably the most severe situation. We can call him Lord, Lord, and not do what he tells us because we actually never really wanted him in the first place. We actually never really wanted him in the first place. We're using Christ, using Christianity, but we have something else that we're after. We'll call ourselves a Christian, but we have no interest in the Christ at the center of it. The scribes and the Pharisees followed Yahweh. Not because they loved him. But because they loved the greetings in the marketplaces and the seats of honor at the feasts and, and, and all of that. They loved what religion got them, what God got them, not God himself. So they'll call him Lord. Not ultimately interested in obedience. Or Judas followed Christ not because he loved him but because he could help himself to the disciples' money bag when no one was looking. That's John 12, 6. I'll call you Lord if it means I get to be in charge of what we give to the poor and everything else. Take a little from me. Or Ananias and Sapphira, another great example. We want to be a part of the church. It has nothing to do with wanting Jesus to be Lord of their lives. They just think they can capitalize on Christian generosity. Get something for themselves. We can do the same thing today, right? People can come to church for a whole host of reasons that aren't actually because they want Jesus. It helps our self-esteem. Feel a little better about ourselves to be a good Christian. Or maybe it's just we like the community. We're lonely. We want friends. We'll put up with a sermon and some long-winded guy if it means that afterwards we get some pizza and we get to hang out. Whatever the case, we can call Jesus Lord and not even want him at all. And this sort of thing is what bottoms out on the day of judgment for these people, uh, along the lines of what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, these haunting words. Where he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, there it is, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and I, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You were in this Christian thing, but it was never for Christ. For me, I don't know you. 
Jesus doesn't want that to be said of us. I don't want that to be said of us. If we call him Lord, Lord, let's do what he tells us, desiring, wanting him above all now. Up to this point, you're going, man, where? Sounds like salvation by works. What are we teaching in this church? Point three that I wanted to bring out from this text is this. The Lord not only warns us, questions us, ultimately he's going to save us. In the end, Jesus will do more to prepare us for the coming judgment than just warn us or just ask searching questions of us. He will die and he will rise for us. And in that, he will lay the foundation upon which we can start to build a life pleasing to God. Many commentators think that Jesus in this text is alluding to Isaiah 28:16. This is where God is speaking to Israel. His wayward people on the brink of exile and God's coming judgment really, but just kind of a precursor to the final day, right? But before God is going to do that, he leaves them with a promise. And this is what he says. Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone. A tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. In other words. The foundation that you guys so desperately need if you are going to stand before me. I will provide for you myself. And then Paul, Peter, later on in the New Testament will take up that text. You want to know what they're going to say? That is talking about Jesus. He's the foundation. He's my foundation. That God laid For us to fall on and then be built back up upon. Because here's what we have to understand. We've said it before. I'll say it again. Judgment day comes in early for Jesus Christ on the cross. The judgment day that's postponed for you and I is brought in early for Jesus Christ. And it's there that he will suffer everything that we're seeing in this text, you guys. I mean, though Jesus himself, uh, by his own admission, only ever did, did what he saw the Father doing. Perfectly obedient. Every jot, every tittle of the law, fulfilling all righteousness. That's Jesus. Though he's building that kind of a house, when judgment day is brought in early for him at the cross, he is treated like the failure that I am. And it's as if the the, the dam of, of heaven is opened and the floodwaters of God's wrath now break out upon his son. So you talk about this bursting against the foundations and the fall of it was great and ruined down to the ground. Well, that is essentially what Jesus is taking there for us on the cross. And when he rises from the dead three days later, what he has essentially done is laid for his people a foundation to fall upon. 
perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, and in light of his perfect obedience, upon his perfect obedience, we can start to build obedience of our own, so to speak. Through his spirit in us, his resurrection life in us, we can start to live a life more in conformity to God and the ultimate human being, Jesus Christ. Because the son laid himself down six feet under, I can stand before God on stable ground. Because of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ongoing work in me, the day of God's judgment will be the day of my redemption. I know it's hard to understand. It sounds like the text is do, do, do. And that's true. But what we want as a church, our first act of hearing and doing to be is falling on that foundation. Because if you follow Jesus's ministry, he will start to say, listen, you better come to me. I will give you rest. Listen, Peter, I'm going to build my church. I'm the one who's going to do this thing. Abide in the vine and you will bear fruit. I've appointed you to bear fruit. So our first act of hearing and doing is falling upon him and letting him have his way with us. When we come to texts like love your enemies, what do you do with that? How do you hear and do that? Well, you fall on your foundation. Jesus Christ is that you did this perfectly. I know because you loved me as your enemy. And so now I believe, I know your spirit is in me. I'm right with God. You're present here. Build this sinful man back up upon that foundation, that rock. We'll start to see spirit at work in regenerate people. People starting to build houses that look like Christ. Because at the bottom of it all and in it all, Christ himself is at work in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what it must have been like for you on the cross. But it seems to me that when you cried out, My God, my God, what you heard in response was depart from me. I never knew you. That you became a stranger. So that we could become sons. And Lord, we stand in awe. That you would take judgment for us. You could start building us back up. We pray you would help us not just to be hearers of the word. But doers. Not to be doers that are legalists relying on our own strength. But doers that are fallen upon you and doing it in yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.